Hey everybody, welcome or welcome back to my channel. Uh, Truth Unites is a place for theology and apologetics done in an ironic way. Ironic means aiming for peace. And I'm really excited to be talking with Swan Sana. I'm gonna put a link to his YouTube channel in the video description and encourage people to subscribe. And we're just gonna do a fun kind of getting to know Swan. I'm really interested just to hear about your past and your interests and your thought process on so many of these things. So. Um, I mentioned your YouTube channel, Intellectual Conservatism. I've, mm -hmm. I was curious, what led you to that name? Well, Gavin, thank you for having me on. And once again, you know, I had you on my channel to get to know you more. And ever since our debate on capturing Christianity, I think that uh, we've had a budding friendship. And so I appreciate that. Um, so the name Intellectual Conservatism, it arose from uh, my time in high school. So when I was in high school, I had like this weird period where I was a progressive, liberal, democratic socialist. And, you know, I was really hardcore on the Bernie train 2016. You know, it was a very polarizing time. And I decided to side with all my friends. And so I grew up thinking like, yeah, the liberals are the smart ones and the conservatives are crazy. They're all, you know, like these uh, right wingers, like, you know, pro Trump and all that. And then as time passed, um, I started contemplating more the commitments of my Christian faith, especially on the issues of marriage and abortion. And the more I studied the Bible and I just tried to do so as honestly as possible, I started realizing that I don't know if I can justify anything but traditional marriage as the union of one man and one woman from the scriptures. And this caused me a lot of, um, let's say, existential dread because I started wondering, wait, if I believe this, then what happens to my friendships? What happens to all of the progressives that I've been leading, um, all the demonstrations I've done, you know, in favor in favor of one candidate over another? And I remember I talked to my grandmother, uh, my adopted grandmother. So since I grew up in the United States, I didn't have my biological grandparents. I had people who were kind of in the Baptist church as my grandparents. And she told me a story about my deceased grandfather and uh, my deceased grandfather. His name was David. And he would take care of this um, homeless guy who was also homosexual. And, you know, he would treat him with Christian compassion. He would tell him when he would ask what the scriptures teach. But he did so in such a way that this person knew that they could come to him and find hope, find compassion, find love. Mm -hmm. And so because of my grandfather's example, I wanted to live a life that has truth and grace. I don't want to compromise truth. <clears throat> In order to appear compassionate, in order to be accepted and loved by the world, because first and foremost, I care about, am I obeying Christ? Because Christ comes first before all things. Mm -hmm. And so because of my grandfather's example, I finally decided, OK, I can't be progressive anymore because I believe that marriage is the union of one man and one woman. I believe it from the scriptures. Uh, I'm pro-life. I believe in the dignity of children. Uh, you know, I remember uh, when I was still kind of you know, teetering between being progressive or conservative, I would talk to my liberal friends and I'd ask them, wait, so are we really, do we really believe that not all human beings are persons? Do we really like, you know, cause I grew up in the tradition that said, everyone has intrinsic moral value by virtue of being human. And that was it full stop. You don't have to, you know, be so wealthy. You don't have to be a man or a woman. You don't have to be um, so cognitively developed or impaired. It's by virtue of being human that you have value. And they they actually were troubled by this, some of them. And, you know, we've been, you know, we've been told, okay, being pro-life is anti-woman. 
Uh, you have to be pro-choice to respect the autonomy of women. Don't force your hands on women's bodies and so on and so forth. And then I realized, okay, the whole narrative that I've grown up on is wrong. Mm. Being pro-life is being pro-woman. You know, and we have to, as men, <clears throat> make that sacrifice. We can't just abandon women. And so as time passed, I realized that I just couldn't be liberal anymore. And I entered this kind of spiritual wasteland where I'm like, man, but I'm liberal now. I mean, I'm conservative. All my liberal friends have left me. Uh, God, what, what's going on here? And then I ran across um, the, the work of Sir Roger Scruton, who's a famous British conservative philosopher. And, you know, he had a documentary called Why Beauty Matters. And in that documentary, he spoke about beauty and poetry and architecture in a way that was just so profound for me. Um, and he talked about how, you know, our Christian inheritance gave us so much beauty in the world because, you know, our Christian ancestors, they saw that the world was enchanted. It was beautiful. It was brimming with the spirit. You know, m m ordinary material things had the power to confer grace. Like there was this whole enchanted view of the world. And so I realized, you know, reading more people like Sir Roger Scruton, uh, reading people like Robert George, who helped explain why the traditional view on marriage is not just, you know, biblical, but also intellectually correct. All these uh, thinkers made me realize that, OK, there is something intellectual to conservatism. And I want to be that curator of bringing the best material together. And so that's why I called it intellectual conservatism. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I forgot to say earlier, thanks for having me on your channel. You kind of initiated this, um, you know, getting to know each other kind of thing. And I love <laughs> doing it. And I'm grateful to be friends. And I've learned a lot from from you as I listen, both your your arguments, your great work, but also your sincerity and kindness. So this is a lot of fun. And I'm it's fascinating to hear your journey there. So in terms of theology, uh, how did your interest in theology as opposed to sort of just, you know, more conservative worldview in general. Where did that begin? Was that early on in your life? Because obviously now it's clear you have a great interest in biblical scholarship and theology. How did that start for you? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I remembered when I was in elementary school and I had friends who would ask me, why are you Christian? And they would bring up questions like, but doesn't it seem kind of dumb to have all of humanity doomed because some guy and some girl ate an apple or something like that. You know, they'd ask me these questions. And at a young age, I was being pressed and I was like, yeah, I want to know the answers to these questions. I don't want to just be, you know, this kind of uh, Crayola crown Christian, you know, just kind of in the basics, but not getting into the advanced things. And so, you know, I would, I'd show up to the adult uh, Wednesday night Bible studies. I'd show up to all these things. I wanted to get the answers. And so as time passed, uh, you know, eventually there was that explosion of apologetics, I think, in the early 2000s, uh, especially with like William Lane Craig debating Christopher Hitchens and uh, was it Michael Lacona debating Shabir Ali, like, you know, these big moments in Christian apologetics. And the more I learned about these things, uh, the more I realized that, wow, I'm really interested in the question of where do we get the Bible from? Uh, because mm -hmm. for me, scripture is so important. And so I wanted to know, you know, kind of the human dimension, right? So here I have, you know, my books of the Bible, but where do these come from? Or what's the context? And I remember, you know, when I when I listened to Shabir Ali, you know, debate Christians or listen to other Muslim objections to Christianity, uh, especially when I'd watch the videos like Nabil Qureshi. There are these questions about like, what are what is like, how, did the Gospels evolve over time? And so you start off with a Jesus who isn't divine, but by the end of the Gospel of John, you have a divine Jesus. Or was there divinity in Christ in the very Gospel of Mark? Was it there in the earliest Christian liturgical practices? What do we know from the earliest sources? 
And so from a very young age, I was interested in those debates. And also it helped that my dad was, a, you know, it was a, at that time a seminarian. And so he had all these theology books and commentaries lying around. Okay, fascinating. So you mentioned William Lane Craig. Um, I've heard you talk, and Mike Lacona, these Christian apologists, maybe you could share a little more about kind of how did they influence you? What was that phase like as you're learning from them? Oh, I mean, it was so exciting because, you know, it was the first time I've ever really heard anybody make an argument for God. You know, growing up, uh, you'd hear people say like, oh, well, I believe that God exists because look at the beauty of a rose. And I'm like, okay, you know, uh, like not to downplay people who, I mean, I think beauty is a strong argument for God, right? But you know, or, or people bring up like religious experiences, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, so that would that works really well for you, but you know, I had Muslim friends, I had, uh, you know, other people, non-religious friends who claimed to have experiences that either entail the existence of God or negated the existence of God, and so I kind of saw that there's a lot of like you know slippery um, room here. I needed something more airtight, and so the first argument for the existence of God that I learned was actually the Kalam cosmological argument. You know, whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. So I learned that from Bill Craig. And then the other argument I learned, um, aside from the fine tuning argument, was the argument for the resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona. And reading that book was just incredible. Uh, you know, it was the first time that I'd seen somebody make an argument for a historical event in the Bible, and especially the most quintessential one, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and so, yeah, those two thinkers had a huge influence on me. And even today, uh, a lot of my arguments, you know, they kind of they I noticed that a lot of my arguments have like a minimal fact structure where I try to go to like, what's some fact that everybody agrees on or what do the scholars, what are they in consensus on? And I realized, wow, OK, so that's Mike Lacona in the back of my head still working. So, <laughs> yeah, it's always the mark of a good professor is when you're doing something later on and, and you can hear their voice in your head <laughs> and you think, OK, they did influence me then. So what time frame is this? I mean, are we talking like high school or something like that? Yeah, so the story is not like it's not nice and straightforward, but, um, you know, when I was in elementary school, right, I'm having people ask me the questions in middle school. I wrestle a lot more with the existential stuff with God, you know, like what's my purpose in life? What's the meaning of life? What if there isn't a God? Uh, and then when I get into high school, I start diving more into um, obviously the deeper apologetic stuff, the meaty things like, you know, is the theory of evolution correct? Uh, did the universe begin to exist? Is the Vorgutfelenkum theorem enough to prove the beginning of the universe and all these other things, you know? So I'd say high school is about the time when it really matured. Although I had this weird detour, as I explained before, where I started going progressive liberal and I don't know how it came about. I think it's just like I was so deep in the books and then I saw like my really intelligent friends, they're all liberal. And so I'm like, oh, of course, I'm like a smart guy, you know, so I'm going to be like them. And eventually I got this weird hybrid and I didn't see it until about 2016. Wait a minute. There's something wrong here. Right, right, right. OK, interesting. W was your Christian faith intact for that whole period of time or were there periods where you walked away from the faith or was your faith solid that whole time? Uh, so I had ups and downs, and I think this is probably, you know, common for a lot of people. Uh, when I was in middle school, I, you know, I was dealing with like, you know, finally growing up. Right. And so I had some, you know, some questions about like, man, does God love me? Uh, you know, those those types of deep emotional questions. But I'd say that the most intense period of doubt was during my sophomore year of high school. Uh, during my sophomore year of high school, my adopted grandmother and my adopted uh, grandfather had died relatively close to each other. And so the, the experience of 
uh, one dying through cancer, one dying through a stroke was just really traumatic for me. Mm. And it got me questioning the goodness of God. And I even described this, um, you know, uh, I have an article on Joshua Swamidas' page, Peaceful Science, about how William Lane Craig schooled me on evolution. And it was during this time that I started questioning the goodness of God because of natural evil. And it, what didn't help was that, you know, on my debate and forensics team, I had this very intelligent guy who later went to Harvard, uh, and he uh, began posing the problem of natural evil to me. But he also began like pressing me on in the Old Testament, the violence of God, the conquest of the Canaanites. And, you know, it's just like, all the, you know, I'm just getting battered left and right. And I'm just like, I don't know what to do with these questions. And so I finally declare I'm agnostic. I write to William Lane Craig and I tell him, hey, Craig, you know, you helped me all this way here. But mm-hmm. the problem of natural evil, you know, the history of life is just full of evil and suffering and death. I can't do this anymore. And lo and behold, eventually William Lane Craig responds to my objection and he just rips me apart. And it's pretty embarrassing, but it's kind of funny um, looking back on it. But yeah, I mean, it's just brilliant, you know, and I messaged Craig on Facebook Messenger and I'm like, hey, Craig, uh, you know, some time has passed and I realized that maybe being agnostic wasn't the best decision. So could you make me anonymous? So I asked him to like kind of mark out my name and everything. But yeah, Dr. Craig uh, helped me a lot because he helped me reconstruct my faith mm. and he helped me see like, OK, what's the what's a healthier way you know, to approach these doubts? And obviously, like when you're going through doubt, you feel like you're being beat up left and right. Every time you see a, a, a you know, some hope, like a, a ray of sunlight, it's being smacked, you know, shut. And so uh, having the friendship of Dr. Craig, um, having some annoying nights with with Gary Habermas, where I just email him. And I'm sure like I, I feel like I, I badgered the poor man with just a bunch of emails with all my questions. Eventually, he sent me to talk to one of his doctoral students about these questions. And, you know, I wrestled with these questions uh, for months and months and I think even a few years but as time passed, the doubt just st- stopped hurting so bad. And then I eventually was able to come to terms with everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, impressive how deeply you've thought through so many of these complicated things starting in such younger years. When I was in junior high and high school, I wasn't thinking about <laughs> emailing <clears throat> Dr. Craig and that kind of thing. But um, so in a second, I want to ask about kind of future where your studies are and your plans are. But just real quick before we leave the problem of natural evil because this we i think we mentioned this when in our last video as well but mm-hmm. it, i'd be curious if you could just kind of frame kind of what that is and then maybe some of the content of what you arrived upon that helped you through that yeah that's a good question so i mean the problem of natural evil is distinct from the problem of moral evil right so you know we can point to examples here and there of people who have done morally horrendous things a serial killer hitler you name them and the question is, how could a good God create a world knowing that these things would happen? Like, what justification could you possibly give? And so when a Christian engages in that kind of justification, it's called theodicy. Now, I think the, with the problem of moral evil, I think that there are plenty of good theodicies, like the free will theodicy, soul building, um, and so on and so forth. But I also think that because you have an agent that is not God, you have a, 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 a fallen human moral agent, I feel like the blame should be focused on the fallen moral agent and not on God. I mean, you know, I feel like that's just kind of like misplacing your agents, so to speak, or misplacing the blame. And so obviously, you know, that I, I found it easier to deal with the problem morally. Now, the problem of natural evil is different because what other agent could you blame except God because he's the one who created the natural world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some problems of natural evil. Like, for instance, if you, 
you know, if you like continue, uh, let's say, not taking care of the pipes in a city and then eventually you have lead poisoning in a neighborhood. Technically, that's a natural evil, but it's obviously connected back to a moral agent. Um, but I mean, you know, take other things that commonly happen in nature, like tornadoes, lightning strikes, a forest burning, a fawn dying, right? These sorts of things or diseases like cancer or strokes happening in animals or just how the history of life and with the theory of evolution just seems so messy and built upon death and death and death and suffering and violence and brutality, you know, and, and all these other examples. And so how did I come to deal with these problems? Well, for, for a while, I considered younger creationism because with younger creationism, I mean, you have this nice, neat story, like everything was good. And then you have the moral agent, Adam and Eve to blame for everything. Right. And then that's how you get to the problem of natural evil. But I mean, even then I, I thought like, you know, causing natural evil after Adam and Eve for their moral evil, that kind of seemed overkill to me. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but when I started approaching in, and so this gets into the whole issue about my views on Adam and Eve. And so I believe in historical Adam and Eve. I don't believe in a literal six day creation period, but that's a whole nother topic. Um, and that's got me in the grill for a little bit with my, <laughs> some of my fans online. But anyway, um, I mean, I think the first thing that I did was I think I read the problem of pain by C.S. Lewis. And in there he talks about animal suffering and he basically says, um, look, we are human beings and we receive revelation as human beings. Right. And even God comes into the world as a human being. And so look, Lewis relies upon, you know, the moral theodicies working, the theodicies for moral evil. But he says, look, we don't know about animals because we're not animals like the other animals. And so. Maybe there is a reason, but it's OK if God doesn't tell us because that's not our dimension. So then as time passed, um, I thought about, OK, but then what about the evil and suffering and death in the world? Right. And then I look back at William Lane Craig's answer and Craig's answer on his website was that what if God created the world anticipating the fall of man? And so rather than having the fall of man kind of just throw everything out of whack, so to speak, God already knew that it was going to happen. And so he creates this small paradise called, Eve, uh, called Eden to kind of play out the drama of how human beings are supposed to live with him. But mm. upon seeing the failure of Adam and Eve, you know, the, the greatest human beings that were created to represent all of us before God, they fail. And so, um, you know, God sends them out of the garden and they see the reality of the world that had anticipated their evil and suffering or the evil that they would commit. And so, you know, I looked at these various kinds of answers and even um you know like for instance what about cancer and all these other things and i just realized that um you know these obviously these are difficult questions but i think the more appropriate answer is just to be there with the person who's suffering and dying mm -hmm. um because look i find the arguments for god incredibly convincing and in the person of jesus christ i find the most powerful demonstration of a god who loves us who wants to heal us Right. And if he doesn't heal everybody, then I trust that he has reasons. Right. And so what I'm basically saying is I don't have a full answer for the problem of natural evil, but I have I feel I believe I have so many good reasons to trust in God. And I've also seen people in my life die so gracefully with Christ, you know, when they're in the midst of cancer or terrible pain, but they have Jesus. It makes the difference entirely. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, look, there's something here. That's got to be true. That's got to be working for these people. The other alternative is that there's no God, that this is everything. This is, you know, this is the end of human life. Cancer was there from the, you know, uh, you know, cancer is there. There's no answer. There's no final way for it to all be dealt with. And so, you know, even like the practical 
arguments. Um, for instance, uh, Marilyn McCord Adams and even Liz Jackson has used these arguments. But like, you look you're like the problem of evil should should lead us to believe in God, because when we look at evil, whether it's natural or moral, we want a solution. But you and I, Gavin, aren't big enough, big enough to solve the problem. There's only one person who is, and that's Jesus. And so why would we throw out our only kind of escape hatch, so to mm -hmm. speak? Why would we cut the branch that we need in order to make it through this world? And so to me, those arguments made a lot of sense. And mm -hmm. at, over time, you know, I've read other books like um, Nature, Red and Tooth and Claw by Michael Murray, or I think that's it, Michael J. Corey, another, or Michael Murray. And then the, there was another one like Evolution, the Problem of Natural Evil by Michael A. Corey. Sorry, mm -hmm. I'm getting my authors mixed up, my Michaels. But, uh, you know, these books are dense and they talk about, laws of nature, fine tuning. And I started realizing that, yeah, these are huge questions. And so I don't think that, you know, there's an easy answer to it. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But that's a good answer. Uh, that's, I'm sure that will be helpful for people who are thinking about that. Um, so uh, what are your what's your current work? And what are your future goals in terms of study? I'm really curious to kind of hear about where your head is at in terms of what you're looking ahead to in terms of where you want to focus your energies. Yeah, so my current studies are focusing on obviously, okay, so I'm really interested in the authority structures of the time of the New Testament and eventually what they develop into, right, in the history of the church, eventually the monoepiscopacy. I'm interested in the legitimacy of this development, uh, the structure of the early church. Uh, and then I'm also interested in Jesus' status as the Messiah in the context of Israel. So, you know, for instance, I've dealt with the argument that, well, it seems as if in the Old Testament, God used an institution that is the courts created through Moses to interpret the Torah definitively for the children of Israel. And it seems as if God operates in this way. And so Jesus, as the new Moses, you know, he's going to do things like Moses, precisely because that's what Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15. A prophet like me will arise from among you, my countrymen. And so, you know, I made the argument that, well, Jesus, as the new Moses, seems to have continued and not destroyed the court structure of Israel. And so I've been I've been interested in the intersection between uh, between Christianity and rabbinic Judaism, Second Temple Judaism and Christianity. You know, that's kind of the broad area of study, um, and especially, you know, I think church structure ecclesiology would be the appropriate way to bracket all that. In terms of future study, um, I plan on becoming a Dominican friar. And so I'm going to join a religious order uh, probably as soon as I grad uh, upon graduation. You know, I'll eventually join. And uh, I intend to study, you know, Thomistic philosophy and theology with them, and then eventually uh, further hone in my work on the papacy in the New Testament. Okay, fascinating. Okay, very cool. Well, we did our debate, and I know you've been involved in other dialogues with not just Protestants, but Eastern Orthodox Christians mm -hmm. and, and other others. Um, sometimes those dialogues go well, sometimes <clears throat> they don't, <laughs> unfortunately. What do yeah. you think are the <laughs> factors that help them go well? Like, what in your mind, what does a productive dialogue or debate look like between, let's say, between Catholic and Protestant, as we've had? Um, I, I'd just be curious, because unfortunately, many times it, you know, it can go better in some cases than others, and it's worth reflecting upon. How does how do we do that well? Because it's not easy to do well. So I'm I'm curious for your thoughts about that. Yeah, well, I think that um I think it's important to remember that you know arguments or debates or conversations, if they're not aimed at truth, then there's no point, right? And so I think the first thing we all have to do is discern, you know, with the opponent that we're going to discuss with, are you really interested in truth or just your ego? 
you know, just get scoring some points and then escaping, you know, a hit and run kind of deal. Um, and so, you know, when when we're discussing something or arguing, what we desire is oneness with each other. And that oneness, that unity has to be uh, located on the truth. Mm-hmm. And so in reality, right, if you have a oneness based on truth, then you have to have love. And so in the process, like when I'm arguing or discussing with somebody, not only do I have to convince them that I think I have the truth, but I also have to be willing to say, oh, but you might have something, Gavin, that's going to make me a better thinker. You know, I have to believe that you have my best interests at heart. I have to believe, Gavin, that you love me and I have to convince you not only my argument, but that I love you as well. And so unless we have that bridge, then we don't have the freedom to really communicate with each other. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if I if I'm like trying to defeat you, Gavin, and you make a good point and I'm just then I can't admit that or else then, you know, that that deflates my whole purpose, my whole ego going into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so what makes a good conversation is that when it's based on truth and it exhibits, you know, these intellectual virtues. And I think it's so important because we often talk about moral virtues like courage, fortitude, um, you know, justice and all these other things. But we also need to have intellectual virtues mm-hmm. like, for instance, intellectual empathy. Right. So I need to be able to kind of learn your position well enough to see the world from your eyes and then be able to use my perspective to kind of, you know, fine tune that perspective. Um, I need to have intellectual patience, right? So suppose that maybe I'm not getting myself clearly across. I can't get frustrated and then channel that frustration on you. Uh, you know, there are all these other intellectual virtues that you have to consider. And so I think that if people went into conversations loving the other person that they're talking to and they're aiming at truth, then naturally the other intellectual virtues follow, right? So you don't interrupt somebody else. Uh, you want to hear the other person out. You don't straw man, like all these other things, they naturally fall together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's really good. Do you have thoughts about debates versus dialogues? Because I've heard, you know, some people I've heard say, and I totally understand if it's a personal choice. If someone says, well, I prefer to do a dialogue than a debate, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Some people I know say we shouldn't do debates, we should only do dialogues. And I tend to think, well, there's space for all kinds of different things. But mm-hmm. how do you approach um that yourself? Do you think there's place for both debate and dialogue? You know, um, well, it depends on what you mean by debate, right? So, you know, I did debate from middle school to high school, and uh, for the most part, you know, it was pretty civil. There were times, though, like, it's funny because, you know, I did this event called Policy Debate, and so in Policy Debate, you have a partner, and it's very structured, seven-minute opening statements, seven-minute um, rebuttals, and then you are or seven-minute uh, second opening statements, and then you have these rebuttals that are five minutes, and then closing statements, right? And eventually it's at a, at a point like because it's too structured and it's so rigid, you know, you're panicking if the person goes on too long or is introducing nuance. And you're like, no, I have to use my three minutes of cross X to nail you as quickly as possible or else I'm going to lose the round and so on and so forth. Right. So I noticed that like when a structure of a debate is too rigid, um, like, you know, for instance, it says like, you know, you say, you, you know, you have 15 minute opening statements, five minute rebuttals. 10 minutes cross-examination, three minutes closing statements, right? And then maybe whatever after that. It gets really nasty because people are trying to cram with time and they're panicking, right? And so at some point people are going to complain, well, oh, it's just the person with the best time management skills who's going to win or something like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a dialogue, um, you know, I think dialogues are great, but there's something that, you know, I mean, suppose that it's just like a 90-minute conversation at, at some point, like, you know, there, you know, there's so many points that are brought up 
that it gets disorganized and some points get casually dropped. For me, I don't like that. I like very organized kind of point by point responses. And so I think the best marriage is like a, a, the best marriage is to bring the two together. Right. Mm. So, you know, you might maybe have 20 minute opening statements. You have the dialogue and then you have five minute closing statements. Right. Something like that. Uh, yeah. That's the preferred structure for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. That's cool. Yeah. And I love what you're saying about intellectual virtues. Oh, man, that is I, I really agree with you. I feel so strongly about that. And I don't know what you think but to me it just seems like in our culture right now that's especially important because so often the the reigning models that we see out there are not practicing patience and charity and so forth so thanks for all of that and then so with that um i think a lot of a lot of us recognize so often these dialogues and debates produce heat rather than light yeah so we want to produce light we want to produce clarity you know so in the spirit of that, what are some things, or maybe just one thing, that you think Protestants can better understand about Catholics? And you've been in both worlds, so maybe you can speak <laughs> to that well. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the biggest thing that I learned about Catholicism is that it is it is so Christocentric. And I think a lot of times people think, oh, but you got the statues of Mary and the saints in your church. Uh, you do prayers to the Blessed Mother. Like, well, how can you be Christocentric? And I think what I realize is that, you know, the reason why, um, you know, for instance, there's veneration of the Blessed Mother is because we believe certain things about Christ that bleed over into the other people that he loved. You know, you know, I think about Christ as kind of like this uh, light. OK, and so if other things are in the presence of this light, they can't be the same either. They're not just ordinary anymore. Right. Anybody who encountered Christ, they always left different. They always left changed. Uh, if they accepted him, that is not everybody did, unfortunately. But um, so with like the person of Christ, you know, one thing that I really emphasize in my own research, but even throughout my life is just the supremacy of Christ. I want to give Christ all the glory, whatever good thing I can say about Christ. I want to be able to say it. I don't want my theology to kind of say, oh, well, you know, Jesus was God and man, but he was more man than he was God. No, 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 no. He was fully God and fully man. I want to give Christ all the glory that I can give to him. And so, um, you know, when I think about Jesus as the Davidic monarch, as the son of David, right, obviously, as it's stated in Scripture in Luke chapter one, verse 32 to 35 in the Annunciation, uh, I look at, well, who was the queen in the Old Testament monarchies under King David and his sons? Well, it was the mother. And so if Jesus is the son of David, he's this royal heir to the Davidic kingdom, then who would be the queen of his kingdom? Well, it'd be his mother. Or even the arguments that I've used for the papacy, such as the Isaiah 22, Matthew 16, 19 argument. Um, if Jesus is this Davidic king, then that bleeds over into the identity of Peter as this prime minister figure. And so the more that I looked at you know, Catholicism, the more I realized it's so fundamentally focused on the person of Christ. And it recognizes that that has consequences for the entire world. It has consequences for individual people as well. Um, you know, and think about the, the Eucharist, right? So, you know, Catholics and uh, Baptists, especially, you know, sometimes we have differences about this. I know that you, you said you accepted the real presence, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I think about, uh, you know, people will often say, well, that, that's so crazy, though. You believe that you're eating Jesus. Uh, you believe that you're becoming this one reality with Christ by, you know, having this Christian meal. And my answer is yes, you know, because... You know, Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven in John 6. And so people will say, but isn't that a difficult thing? And I'm like, yeah, well, that's exactly what the crowd said. 
It's a difficult teaching. Even Peter says, Lord, your words are difficult, <laughs> but, you, but your words are life. Who else do we have to go to? And see, that's the kind of spirit that I want to have with the tough teachings of Jesus. Like, Lord, you are God. Who else do I have to go to? Your words are life. And so if you say it, then I'm going to believe it, right? Um, or even the Catholic Church's understanding that it is the body of Christ, right? And so certain things that are predicated of Christ's body can be predicated the church. For instance, Christ is infallible. So he shares that authority with his church. And we see this, in, I would argue, we see this in the scriptures with Jesus sharing you know, his authority with his apostles. Whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. Whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me, right? Um, so the point that I want to make is that, you know, this view of Christ in Catholicism is not this kind of Christ who is clinging to himself, but it's a Christ who pours himself out into other people. And so just as in the incarnation, you have a God, I mean, you have Jesus who is fully God and fully man, Right. You have this kind of incarnational view of the church being both this natural institution, but having these supernatural properties and so on and so forth. And so for me, that's what I find really inspiring about Catholicism, how much it focuses on the incarnation, how much it focuses upon how in Jesus Christ, there's that bridge between heaven and earth. And so, you know, even with the idea of the veneration of the saints, um, sorry, I'm kind of going all over the place. Right. But even with like the veneration of the saints, uh, like, you know, for the for the ancient Jews and even for the early Christians, literally, you know, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he literally just is captured by a cloud. For them, heaven was just right above what we see in the blue sky, right, or something like that. Like, heaven was that close to them. Or when you read the writings of the rabbis and the sages, they talk about how all the time, you know, the Holy Spirit would be guiding them. Or they talk about how, um, you know, the the court in heaven would help the court on earth. So clearly there is this view that heaven and earth are in communion with each other and they're communicating actively. There isn't the sharp, natural, supernatural heaven, earth divide. And so this leads to this enchanted view of the cosmos, this view that, you know, creation is not ordinary anymore because Christ, because God entered into it. And so it's not as if creation and God are opposed to each other through Jesus Christ. They can be one reality. Mm. Thanks for sharing all that. And it's a good opportunity for any Protestants watching to do exactly what you just mentioned, where practice intellectual patience and, and listening, trying to understand sympathetically so that even if they disagree, they can say, oh, I can see how this makes sense. I can see the beauty of, of this way of looking at things. So um, I want to go back. You mentioned arguments for God's existence a few moments ago. I'm curious to ask, based upon working through those, which do you think is most powerful? And then secondly, which do you think is most useful in our culture right now? Maybe those yeah. two answers will be the same argument, but maybe not. No, they're, they're definitely not. Uh, you know, <laughs> okay, so the best argument for the existence of God, in my opinion, is uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's De Ante argument. And so the De Ante argument, I think it's best to understand it through the contingency argument. And so with the contingency argument, there's this idea that, look, um, there are contingent things, right? So nothing exists by necessity. Uh, you know, you see a leaf outside and then you see that the leaf is destroyed. Uh, you have a human being in front of you and maybe that human being lives for 70 years and then that's it. Or, you know, if you want to go down the route of like someone like Steven Pinker, right? I mean, all the species that we see, if evolution happened differently, maybe we get different species. We get all kinds of different biological life, right? So you have all these things that are contingent. There's nothing that really seems to happen by necessity, right? And especially in terms of existence, this is the thing we focus on. There are some things that are that exist only contingently, right? 
And well, you know, in order to explain why any contingent thing exists or the set of all contingent things, you either have another contingent thing or you have something that's not contingent. But the problem is that if you have something that's contingent, then it's just part of the set of things that need to be explained, right? If nothing exists by necessity, things depend on other things for their existence, then where does the existential uh, buck stop, so to speak? Well, then you need something then that's not contingent. And so you need something that's necessarily existent. And, you know, eventually you can deduce the other divine properties from that. But, you know, the point is that at the bottom of all contingent reality, and I mean, contingency is just so obvious, at least that might be controversial, but I think it's pretty clear, like, you know, a lot of things don't exist by necessity. They can go in, I mean, they can go out of existence. And so Aquinas then makes this observation. He says, well, let's look a little closer at contingent things, right? He notes that, um, look, things don't exist by necessity, right? And and there's there's this thing called essence that explains the kind of thing that something is, right? So for instance, you have a leaf and the leaf has certain properties that make it a leaf. Or as a human being, right? Like you have certain properties like rationality, but you also have the power of locomotion, so on and so forth. And so you have this essence of rational animality that explains all of your properties and it unifies them together into a neat package, right? You're not just a bunch of random properties put together. I can very intelligibly tell that you are a human being, a rational animal, and you are really distinct from a frog. You're really distinct from a horse, you know, and so on and so forth. But there's nothing intrinsic to your humanity or humanness that necessitates you have to exist. It has to be given to you, so to speak, right? Um, take a, a leaf, right? There's nothing about a leaf or leafness that demands that it exists or, you know, a planet, right? You can use all these other examples. And so Aquinas makes the observation, well, look, if, if you know, things are contingent because their essence doesn't entail their existence, right? Existence has to be given to them. Then we need um, a place where the buck stops and where essence and existence are not really distinct, you know, that, that is to say that you could conceivably separate them, but that, no, they actually do come together in one reality, right? So there is this thing whose essence and its existence are not really distinct, but are really one. And that thereby everything else that's contingent, right, um, it can exist because this thing that is necessary, that whose essence is one, uh, essence is one of the existence, can give that thing existence by sharing in its own reality or something like that. And so basically Aquinas's Deante argument is a more precise contingency argument. Mm -hmm. um, and so I found it really helpful and convincing. I don't know how you can de deny essences, especially like in the work of David Oderberg and other scholars, um, you know, the work of Aristotle, uh, the Aristotelian categoricals and so on and so forth, identifying species and, and stuff like that. Like I find that just so plausible. Mm. Okay. So now that we're, we got to the best argument, I'm now going to get to the most useful one. I think the most useful argument is the argument from desire uh, made by people like C.S. Lewis and others. But there's this idea or even, you know, um, going back to Marilyn Court Adams, this kind of practical reasons to believe in God. Right. But I mean, if you think about it, like think about the things that we care about most objective morality. I care about my loved ones. There's something that just seems wrong about death being the end. Um, mm -hmm. And also, if you think about it, too, like human civilizations, like we really need religion or this idea of the transcendent in order to function and live and to bear the suffering of reality. Right. And so it would seem so downright absurd if there weren't a God. 
Like we're wired for God, but there's no God. What else are we wired for? But there's no terminus, so to speak, for that desire. And so really, you know, the argument from desire is this idea that at bottom, look, there's a there's there's something that if there weren't a God, then these desires would be so absurd. Right. Um, and if there is, you know, and if there isn't a God and we have to kind of suppress that intuition that, no, there has to be something greater. You know, like you think about people who are like the, one of the effects of sin is that you get so entrenched in it that you stop really striving for the transcendent. You become cynical. You stop seeing the good. I mean, when you look at people like that, you're like, that's not a good human life. But like, do I do I need, quote unquote, this delusion in order to have a good, fulfilling human life, you know, or or in order to run a civilization and a society? And, you know, what helps is that in, in my you know research into conservatism, there are a lot of atheist conservatives who are like, yeah, we need religion, but they have a hard time believing in God themselves. But they recognize mm. this society cannot function without Christianity. Um Sorry to sound like someone's grandpa, but I guess that's kind of the truth of the matter. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, when I look at this argument from desire, I'm just like, this seems to just point so strongly, like deep within you. Like, you know, the reason why it's so useful is because people are right now today governed so much by their desires. They're governed so much by like they want to believe in the good. They want to believe, you know, and, and so forth, so, uh, other things. But you know, they don't trust reason. They don't trust institutions. They think you just have to assert, you know, whatever. But I'm saying, OK, let's take that assertion, you know, power that you have where you declare, you know, like, you know, for instance, take like how some people declare my body, my choice, as if that's an argument. You know, it's flawed, but that power of assertion is so important for people. Mm-hmm. And so I'm saying here, how about you reclaim your life from materialism from atheism, and you assert, no, there is a God, there is objective beauty, there is objective morality, life doesn't end at the grave, there is everlasting hope in Christ. Use that assertion-making power to something that's greater, to something that's more fulfilling, ultimately speaking. And so that's why I consider it to be the most useful argument for the existence of God. I'm saying, take all the things that you love, and what's going to secure them the most? Only God, right? Your treasure's your true treasures are the ones in heaven, not on the earth. Yeah, that's good. Well, I, I want to send you, if you have any time or interest to take a look at it, my my book that came out, because it makes a lot of sort of arguments from desire. And I'd love, if you have any time to look at it, it'd be fun to talk about more, because what you're saying really resonates with uh, my how I tend to approach these things, too. So that's really cool to hear. Um so what what advice would you give to someone who's doubting? If it, let's say there's a Christian who's going through a season of deconstruction, as is very trendy right now, how mm. would you counsel them to work through that? Yeah, well, I think um, the big thing that happens in doubt, and this is something that Craig taught me, is that typically speaking, people doubt because they develop a horribly warped view of God. And I think there's sometimes so one thing is that you know we got to work on our one's view of God. But then secondarily, I think that there usually we we get into the, these really nasty you know stages of doubt when we don't take care of our soul, you know. And so, for instance, I'd recommend you know like rest, um, you know, take a break. It's okay maybe to just go a day without reading your Bible, right? Like some people will try to read their Bible seven days a week. That's brilliant. That's good. But it's okay to take a break. It's not like oh you missed that one day you're going to hell now. No, that's not that's not how it is. <laughs> I also think that, you know, a lot of people have this view that God is just this really stringent bully 
who's mm-hmm. always out to get you, right? And as soon as you make a mistake, he's like, aha, now I see that you're not worthy of my, 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 my love and grace, right? And so I'd recommend, you know, people read, you know, the parables in the Gospels, especially, you know, the, the prodigal son. That story is simply profound, how it gets at the heart of God, how God is not you know, you know, God, you know, the father obviously being God in that story, he's not out looking for the son to condemn him. He's actually out on the front porch waiting to see him return. And then he runs to him, even though he's wasted his birthright, he's wasted the father's wealth. He doesn't care. And even like when he sees the father, notice what the son says, right? The son says, you know, father, I'm not worthy to be in your house as a son, make me a slave, make me a servant. And then the the father just kisses him on the cheek and he says, no, come into my house. We're going to kill the fattened calf for you, right? God is not out here to get us. He's out here. Well, he's not out here to get us in the sense of, you know, kind of putting us down. He's out here to get us in the sense that he is madly in love with us. Okay. And so, you know, sometimes some people have heard the gospel expressed like this. Look, your sins, you down to your core are so disgusting that God had to do something about it. And so he sent his son to die on the cross. But that you don't die for somebody that you don't love. You don't enter into somebody else's reality, right? Into, you know, a human body that can suffer and die if you don't love humanity, if you don't love the person. And so I'd say, you know, there are aspects of God that need to be highlighted, such as the incarnation, such as the heart of God in the product of son story and all these other things. Um, and so, you know, taking care of your soul, um, focusing on these aspects of God that I think highlight his heart. And then, you know, I think what, what also needs to occur is a reordering of one's theology, right? So some mm-hmm. people will say, okay, I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of God's, you know, punishments and violence in the Old Testament with how he seems to be in the New Testament, right? And it's like, well, no, no, Jesus is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. And so you have to somehow see how the two go together, right? And one thing I noticed is that, you know, in the book of, was it the book of Jonah? It's kind of funny because, um, you know, Jonah accuses God, the Old Testament God, of being too merciful. Mm. (laughs) Like, you wouldn't expect that, right? I mean, that's, and then, I mean, literally God is just like, yeah, the people repented. I'm not angry anymore. You know, it's gone. It's done. It's finished. Or even, you know, in the Old Testament, when you read in the book of Genesis, uh, you know, eventually you hear about the Amorites and the Canaanites, right? And people talk about the conquest of Canaan. Well, if you pay attention to what God says to Abraham when he makes the covenant, he says, look, Abraham, your descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land for 500 years. And I'm going to let that happen. You know, my my chosen people, I'm going to let you be slaves. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites have not reached their fullness. So for 500 years, God waited for the Amorites to repent of their sins. And he even he waited so long and so hard that he even allowed his own chosen people to be slaves in Egypt. And then finally, God said, time's up. It's time for judgment. You know, and so, you know, just looking at these phrases, uh, these passages in Scripture with a new lens, with a new light. I think those are really important. Yeah, it's really good. So when you interviewed me, you asked about classical theism and I was sharing about, you know, how my views on that have uh, solidified. Uh, I'm curious to ask you about that. what is classical theism and how important is it in, in your mind? Because this is a big issue right now. Sure. Okay, so what is classical theism? Well, I think classical theism, there are four kind of hallmark beliefs in classical theism, right? One is divine simplicity, 
divine impassibility, divine timelessness, and um, oh, what's the other one? Divine immutability. I think yeah. that's the fourth one. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I can't believe I forgot that for a second. I think at some point some of them kind of blend in, <laughs> but the basic right. idea is that uh, with, with the God of classical theism, he is not another person like me and you. Okay. So uh, God is not this immaterial mind who just happens to be omnipotent, omniscient, and have all these powers, right? Uh, you know, pe the theists like Richard Swinburne have kind of used God as this analogy, or even, um, you know, Alan Plantinga has talked about God as kind of like another immaterial mind that's just super powerful, necessarily existent, you name it, right? But what we say as classical theists is that God is like, he's like, <laughs> his essence, right, is existence. He is existence itself. He is being itself. He is the fullness of reality. There's like we I, we can't even begin to kind of describe him, right? Because he's so infinite and wonderful and just the foundation of everything. And so even, you know, as I talked about before, like, you know, things are only beautiful insofar as they imitate the divine essence, right? Because in God, there's the fullness of reality. There's pure act, right? There's nothing lacking in him. As the scriptures say, there are no shadows of turning, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so with divine simplicity, it's this idea that like God is identical to his perfections, right? Or uh, his attributes. So, you know, at, at, in God, it's not the case that, you know, you have God who's kind of like the first explanation of everything. And then eventually when you get to God, you kind of have to hodgepodge all these perfections together, right? right. Like, huh, you know, it'd be really cool if God was omnipotent. All right, he's omnipotent. Or, you know, you know, something like that. Um, it's this idea that, no, like all these perfections, they, they just kind of boil down into one reality. That is simply what we call God or divinity or what have you, right? right. And so, you know, divine, divine simplicity, God is identical to his perfections and his attributes. It's not the case that God is full of beauty. It's that God is beauty itself. Or even take the Euthyphro dilemma, right? You know, does God will something because it's good or is something good because God wills it, right? So it kind of poses this dilemma. And typically the solution is that God is goodness itself. Right. It's it's there's a third option you can do. Well, that sounds perfectly wonderful for classical theism. Right. That it's not the case that God is good because, you know, he kind of ticks off all the boxes on the morality check, but that he is the standard itself. He is goodness itself. Um, and so you have other things like divine timelessness. Right. God doesn't experience temporal succession. I think this follows from a God who's omnipresent. So to use an analogy, um, I don't know if you watch the X-Men movies at all. I like to use oh, yeah. this analogy, yeah. but you remember like when Quicksilver, when he, the faster he goes through time, right? Uh, the faster he goes through time, the slower he goes through space, right? Mm. Or uh, I think that's how you say it. Um, you know, so like you, you, the more the quick, the more quickly you go through <clears throat> various events, time slows down for you. That's how I should right. say it. Right. And so if God is present at all moments, then time would be so slow for him, so to speak, that there wouldn't be time because mm. he's already there in all the places at once. So he wouldn't experience that kind of succession. I mean, that does. I don't think that would negate that he could know like what time it is or something like that. But that's another discussion. Um, or even like divine impassibility. Uh, some people have problems with this, right? So they'll say like, oh well, if God's impassable, then he can't have emotions, right? But um, what I find comforting is that because God in Himself is full bliss, He is fully happy in and of Himself. Mm. Then I can, you know, I think about when Jesus, you know, in, during the storm in the gospel of, I think it's Matthew and Mark, uh, you know, when the when the waves are crashing and everything like that. Did I get that right? Or is it one of the other gospels? When Jesus is sleeping. In the boat. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
in the Gospels, right? Um, and, you know, everyone else is freaking out. They're all scared, you know, and Peter comes down. He says, like, Lord, we're about to drown. What are you doing down here? And then Jesus is just fast asleep. And he says, like, why have you woken me up, right? I mean, that you see kind of the impassibility of God kind of sneaking through in Jesus because he's not worried. He's not scared. You know, he knows that everything's going to be okay. And so I find comfort in that kind of impassibility of God. But then also in the person of Christ, I do see my own sh- sufferings shared, my own sufferings expressed, and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, I mean, so that's classical theism. Now, why is it important to believe? I think it's important to believe because it gives God his full intellectual due. As I said before, with my theology, especially my Christology, I want my theology to give God all the glory that can be given to him. You know, so I don't want to have to blunt the glory that I can give to God. Right. I don't want to say like, oh, yeah, well, God is like really good, but he's not goodness itself. I don't want to say that. Or, for instance, uh, God can know a lot of things, but he can't know all things. No, I'm not not going down that route. Right. I want to give God his full glory. And so in classical theism, um, you get this this God who is the first principle of all things, who is the cause, right? And nothing moves him. He moves everything else. There's this absolute supremacy and uniqueness to God that I really enjoy and like in that theology. And so I'd say classical theism is important because aside from the philosophical arguments that one can give, like I find Aristotelian Thomism very convincing. Um, aside from that, I also think it does give God his full due. Mm-hmm. And I think the third thing I'd add in is that I think it's much easier to be a mystic with classical theism than it is with like other forms of theism. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of people have problems with viewing God as this kind of like angry, old, uh, bearded white guy in heaven or something like that, you know. But when you get to a God who transcends all those categories, who is beauty itself, who is goodness itself, you have the room for mysticism. You have the room for, I don't know, just, I mean, one thing that I like about God is that He's such a deep mystery, and it's a mystery that never stops giving. Mm-hmm. And so every day of my life, if I if I woke up contemplating God, I wouldn't reach the end, but I'd reach a sweet kind of starting point every mm-hmm. single day. It never gets old. Mm, that's really good. I want to. I was almost pausing to write that down. The mystery that never stops giving. Uh, that's that's a good phrase. So, what <laughs> which is your favorite X Men movie? Because now we've reached upon a point of another point of common ground we have. Because I like the X Men movies as nice. well. Oh, that's tough. Um, okay, so for me, it's a toss-up between uh, First Class and Days of Future Past. Ah, nice. Mm-hmm. I would actually say the exact same thing. I lo- I loved Days of Future Past. I I, lo- I in my book I talk about that final scene. Anyway, I shouldn't go on with X Men, <laughs> but I also love the first two that Brian Singer did, the 2000 and 2003. I think those were mm-hmm. good starter ones as well. But okay, we'll talk about X Men another time too. But um, so the, one thing I wanted to ask you about too is the value of philosophy for Christians in general, but especially for theologians, because this is something I admire about the Catholic tradition and think is a relative point of com- comparative weakness in my tradition, especially as an evangelical. Not totally, but. As a generalization, a lot of times evangelicals don't really value philosophy as highly. Um, Why do you think it's important for Christians and especially for theologians to do philosophy well? Well, I think that, you know, the importance of doing philosophy well, I mean, there's, there's so many answers that one can give to this question. I think the first is, you know, Christ calls us to love God with all our heart, mind and body and soul, you know, all these things, all these aspects of who we are. And he includes the mind, right? The mind is not something to be thrown out. And Mm -hmm. so I think that, you know, if you've done philosophy well, 
uh, and you 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 know you get deeper into the mystery of God, right? I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience or the experiences of other philosophers. Um, if you do philosophy well, especially with God, then you know God doesn't become this kind of piece of furniture in the rest of your ontology, right? Um, he becomes so wonderful, you know, the starting point of all your thinking that you just, you know, um, thinking about God becomes a form of intimacy. And I think that's a that's an intimacy that I think all of us could use, right? Even people who are lay people, right? And they're not super deep into theology or the isms, right? But like thinking about God, maybe using your imagination, thinking about, you know, the nature of God, all these things are just so enriching because, you know, think about, you know, I guess, you know, with you being married, right? You think about your wife, right? You think about, hmm, what would my wife do in this situation? Or you think about uh, what does she love? What does she value? Why does she value the things that she values? Why does she love the things that she loves, right? Um, all these things, this isn't kind of this cold kind of doctor looking at your body, right? I think that's the impression that some people have philosophy. It's a way to attain to intimacy through the mm. intellect. Mm. And so if you're going to love somebody with all of your humanity, all of who you are, then your intellect has to be part of it. And so I'd say that part of loving God part of the importance of philosophy is that it can help you increase intimacy with God. The second thing is that I've noticed that when people don't have an intellectual foundation for their belief in God, they tend to be more um, in the twos and fro's of emotions, right? So as soon as like something bad happens, they just have to kind of punch themselves and say, no, God is real. God is good. I have to believe this. I have to believe this. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like if your intellect is convinced that God is good, that God is real, Right. That brings you just a whole nother level of comfort in these times of troubles, because you're like, look, I don't know how to answer this question, but I know what the answer can't be. The mm -hmm. answer. And I know this with full intellectual conviction. Right. The answer can't be that God has abandoned me or that God isn't good or that God doesn't exist. But if you're just stuck in the twos and fro's of emotion, then you have to kind of, as I said before, whip and punch yourself into just like, no, I have to believe this because. I don't know. I guess it's what my parents have handed on to me. I guess it's what my community has beaten into me. Right. No, 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 no. That that way of doing philosophy, if it's done well, gets you greater intimacy. And it also brings greater comfort in times of doubt. And it also um, if you know how to reason well, especially, um, you know, you're not too scared by doubts. Right. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, for instance, you know, if a doubt comes up and you don't know too well how to reason through syllogisms or point out a fallacy in an argument, then an argument might sound really plausible. And maybe in your stomach, you have like this uneasy feeling like, I think there's something wrong with this argument, but I don't know. And then you just kind of say, okay, fine. I'll just, I accept that the argument is valid or sound or something like that. If you don't have that, that ability to kind of detect BS, to put it bluntly, right, <laughs> then you're going to get caught up in it more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 that's great. Okay, I have two more questions. Um, this second to last one, I'm very, uh, curious and, and interested to hear, uh, you talk about, and that's your position on universalism. I, I have no idea what it is, <laughs> but I know you mentioned this in, in yeah. our discussion, or I think I was talking, I can't even remember how it came out, but I remember it came out somehow or another. And I think you've written or researched on this in some way. I hope, I hope that's right. Yeah. So I have a paper on my academia.edu page called almost apocatastasis. Apocatastasis just being this idea of like a universal restoration of all things, right? Um, so here are my thoughts on universalism. Uh, I think that from scripture, you have, okay, so let's go back a little bit, right? So there's there's scripture and then there's kind of our moral philosophy of God. I think there are these two things that are trying to 
we're trying to marry together, right? Because one is that obviously the idea of hell, whatever it is, seems really morally repulsive, or at least maybe just aesthetically repulsive, right? Although I think it should be morally as well. Like there's something that seems really bad, right? About someone ending up in hell forever. And especially like, you know, everyone asks this as a kid, like, why does it have to be forever? Um, is it real fire or things like that? Um, when you look at scripture, and this is really important for me because I, as I told you in the beginning of the episode, Gavin, I'm not in a position to compromise on scripture. If the Lord says it, then I believe it. I'm, I'm, you know, maybe that doesn't sound intellectual, but I don't care. I don't care about sounding smart if someone doesn't believe in the supremacy of Christ, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so uh, what does scripture say? Well, I mean, Jesus clearly talks about Gehenna. He talks about a place of separation. He talks about fire and destruction. He also talks about darkness. Okay, so this is kind of weird already. We have a fire that doesn't emit light. So there, it, obviously Jesus is using certain images to get across the idea to the audience. And obviously, um, as you know, there's a valley in, uh, in Israel that is, I think, literally called Gehenna, right? The place of burning destruction. It's a trash heap, right? And so Jesus uses that image to make clear to the minds of the people this is what hell is, right? And so, I mean, for them, I think it works. But I think like, you know, when C.S. Lewis talks about hell in his own way, I think in The Great Divorce, if I'm not mistaken, um, mm. uh, you know, when he uses that image, I think it's totally fine. Because I think for every generation, what we conceive of as the greatest torment is going to be different, right? The image can change, the concept cannot, okay? So scripture clearly talks about eternal separation, but then it also has these passages where uh, it talks about Christ pulling all men to himself. Um, it has passages where, you know, um, it, it, it kind of sounds universalist to some extent, right? Or something is being given to all men regardless. And so, you know, as you know, Balthazar, he comes down to the conclusion that, no, these passages genuinely conflict. We can't really draw anything. Well, I don't want to straw man him. He knows, he, he argues they genuinely conflict. And he believes that the the option then that we should take is not one or the other, but just a hopeful universalism that we can hope that each individual is saved, even though perhaps maybe we know that not all will in fact be saved, but we ought to have the hope that each person will be saved. And I think that's totally fine. I think that's what we should be hoping for, right? That's, that's a righteous hope to have. Um, but still, scripture is quite clear that there is like there is a real consequence to rejecting God. There is a real consequence to sin and evil in the world. Right. And so on and so forth. And so what I do is in my paper, I try to bring together the two kind of views, universalism and kind of this traditional eternal torment model. And the view that I come up with, I call it almost apocatastasis or universal subjugation. But the idea is that everybody will return to God in varying degrees of perfection. So, you know, take a there's a there's a doctrine in I think platonic philosophy um, where it's like all things return back to their source or something like that. I forget the exact Latin for it, but regardless, there's this idea, right, that everything that's sent out because it's internal telos is ultimately God, right? Especially human beings remain the image of God. He's the one who completes us. Every person will could return to God and hence all people will be pulled up to Christ, but in varying degrees of perfection. And so, for instance, if you look at the book of Daniel, right, you'll see that some of the saints there's a hierarchy in the saint in the sainthood. There's a hierarchy in heaven where some people have a brighter glory than other people. Well, I make the argument then that I think the reverse can also be said of those who are in hell, 
right? There are varying degrees of imperfection as well. But the clear demarcation between the saint and the damned is this virtue that I call humility, right? So think about in the Gospels, Jesus cares so much about this virtue of being childlike, of giving up everything now without question, right? Like you think about how the apostles are portrayed. They hear the voice of Christ. They drop everything. They're they're in the middle of fishing, and then they just drop out and go to him, right? There's like this childlike self-surrender that God wants so much. And so for the saints, you know, who ha- who exhibit this virtue in conjunction, you know, with grace and so on and so forth and participating in Christ, that will clearly separate who is among the saved and who is among the damned, right? This virtue of self-sacrifice that totally exemplifies the self-sacrifice of Christ on the cross, right? Christ as the son of God, Christ like a slave, empties himself without question to the father, without question to all humanity. Um, Okay, so there's a clear demarcation between the damned and the saved. um, But I also argue that I don't think it's impossible for the damned to experience happiness. And so interestingly enough, the church talks about natural versus supernatural happiness. Mm-hmm. And the, so now I'm drawing on my tradition. Um, but so supernatural happiness only comes from God, the beatific vision. As you know, it's, it talks about in First uh, John and Second Peter, becoming partakers in the divine nature, and uh, talks about being made like him, for we shall see him as he is, right? Um, this supernatural happiness, this beatific vision, is only available to the saints. But... Um, the damned can experience a natural but not supernatural happiness in this way. Okay, so obviously, I, I you know I don't think that the damned will lose their bodies or things like that because it says all will rise again from the dead, so they'll be able to experience natural happiness, right? But at at that point, there's no longer any mystery about who God is. You know, it, it, Paul talks about how all creation will sing and praise to God. I don't see how praising God couldn't bring joy of some sort, but I think that the damned joy will be tempered with sorrow as well because it's kind of like watching you know the girl that you loved and you messed up with in high school right like you messed up the relationship you watch her now get married to another guy there's like a joy there like wow she's happy now but also a sorrow like oh i messed up so bad right um and then i also think about and i'll close with this i think about moses on mount nebo right so because he sins he strikes the rock twice he can't enter into the promised land and God, you know, it's a punishment, obviously, because he's not en- allowed to enter into the promised land. In this case, it would be for us the new Jerusalem that's to come at the end of the age. But don't you think Moses was happy to watch the Israelites, the saints, so to speak, in this example, enter into the promised land? Wouldn't that have brought him some joy? And so I think, too, the damned will experience joy tempered with great sorrow at watching the saints make it into the promised land. Hmm. And so that's kind of how I balance it all together. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Well, I, I would like to read that paper. Sounds very interesting. So last question is, what do you think will be the topic or title of your first book? And I realize this is being a bit presumptuous and assuming you're going to write a book at some point. But that seems like a fairly reasonable expectation because you already write so much. Yeah, well, um, I originally wanted to write my book on the papacy, like, you know, as soon as possible. I've been doing tons of research in that area. Um, and especially the early church, I just love studying Christianity at its infancy. Like, it's just so interesting to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I recently have been discerning, right, the priesthood. I've been discerning the Dominican order. And I realized that 
you know, before all else, my relationship with Christ comes first. Okay, so I need to be a good Catholic, a good Christian before I'm a good scholar, before I'm everything else, you know, Mm -hmm. and because my relationship with Christ, that's what I care about the most, you know, and also I care a lot about, you know, living a life that exemplifies the gospel. So I want to go out, evangelize, um, you know, and, uh, you know, doing apologetics and debates and research and books, you know, that's part of it. Right. But there's also the evangelism of just being there for somebody else. And especially for me, like the priesthood, the reason why I find it so appealing is that in the priesthood, I can absolve someone of their sins by participating in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Um, I can give someone the body and blood of Christ. I can give someone the thing that I love most, which is Jesus, in a real supernatural way. You know, And so I care more about those things than anything else. That's where my heart is, you know. And also, you know, growing up, too, I, I, I've seen— you know, people who were so intelligent, right? But they had no heart, they had no soul. I don't want to become that kind of person, you know? And so uh, I'm, I'm probably going to delay my book on the papacy for like a doctoral dissertation. But um, I'm working on just writing out my testimony because I think when I write out my testimony, I can just give the Spark Notes version of my case for the papacy and I can at least give the people something. But also, I think, you know, my story is pretty funny, you know, and I think uh, people would appreciate just learning a little bit more about you know, all the mistakes that I made, but also the great triumphs of my life. And so I like to give maybe my conversion testimony. Um, have I, I don't think I've come up with a name for it just yet. I think I called it like, I think I'm calling it like home again or something like that. Um, but I'm not sure just yet, but I think that's what my first book is going to be about my conversion to Catholicism. Awesome. Very cool. Well, Swan, thank you for this. I, I find it fascinating listening to your thoughts uh, and I really appreciate you. So hopefully these will be the first interactions of more to come down the line, whatever that looks like. And maybe just uh, to finish, where can people find out more about you? Like I said, I'll put a link in the video description for your YouTube channel. Anything else you want to share about how people can learn more about you? Yeah, so my YouTube channel, obviously, Intellectual Conservatism. I have a Facebook page that kind of, you know shares articles on politics. And uh, I have a podcast, an Apple podcast under the same name. I have an academia page. And I'm trying to think about what else. Um, and then obviously, if you just Google or YouTube my name, you can find all the interactions and things that I've done. Um, but there's one last thing I do want to say, Gavin, and that is that, you know, um, growing up as a Baptist uh, and having my father be a Baptist minister, you know, I, I've kind of seen firsthand, so to speak, like what a, what a Baptist minister has to go through or any pastor, really. And so I want to say that I appreciate the ministry that you're doing because you really are helping people. And you really are elevating souls. And so, you know, I don't doubt that what you're doing is is real. It's supernatural. There's beauty to it. You know, and I want you to know that I, I, as a Catholic, you know, being formerly a Baptist, I don't look down upon you, Gavin. You know, it's kind of funny, uh, not to make this weird, but when I was debating you, I was kind of like, man, I feel like I'm debating my dad, you know, like, (laughs) because I had grown out of beard, you know? Oh, yeah, right, right. But yeah, Gavin, I appreciate the ministry that you're doing. Um, Yeah. Thanks a lot, Swan, for saying that. And I I feel the same way toward you. And it's awesome to be able to, you know, be friends and learn from each other along the pathway of even where we come from different traditions and disagree on important issues. And we we can talk about all of that. But, you know, I take the view we can do that in the context of friendship. Why not? And why not talk to people of all different kinds? But certainly when we have so many common beliefs as well, you know, so I really appreciate what you're saying there. So thank you. Very kind of you to say. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like this video and subscribe. Check out Swan's channel. Subscribe to his channel. God bless everybody.